All right, that said, flip to Psalm chapter 83. You can grab your Bibles and go to Psalm chapter 83. Talking tonight about conspiracy of nations. Psalm 83. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 83, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. O God, do not remain at rest. Do not be silent, and O God, do not be quiet. For behold, your enemies roar, and those who hate you have lifted up their heads. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one heart. Against you they cut a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gibal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have become the power of the children of Lot, Selah. Do to them as to Midian, as to Sisera and Javan at the river of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who were as dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmana, who said, Let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. O oh, my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that burns up the mountains. So pursue them with your tempest, and dismay them with your storm. Fill their faces with disgrace that they may seek your name, O Yahweh. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, your name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. Let's pray. Our Father in God, guide us, we ask today, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord we pray, and amen. You can be seated. So throughout this series, I have tried to choose a variety of psalms, of different types of psalms, so as to showcase the variegated style and, frankly, the sheer genius of the Psalter. There are wisdom psalms. There are psalms of praise, psalms of lament, psalms of uh, thanksgiving, psalms of trust and confidence. There are royal or sometimes called messianic psalms, psalms of remembrance. There are pilgrimage psalms. And, of course, psalms of imprecation, uh, or commonly known as imprecatory psalms. The wide variety of songs in the Psalter speaks to the multifaceted nature of human experience. The, the Psalter is emotional, engaging our senses. It is full of wisdom and knowledge, of course, engaging our minds. And it is also full of action, which helps us anchor our purpose within the purposes of God. And by the way, when we speak of the mind and the emotions and all of that, we don't divide that up uh, in, in, in the biblical worldview. All of that is just you. You are one. You are, uni- you are echad in Hebrew. You are uni- a unit. Uh, there's no way you can possibly divide those things up. We can delineate and talk about them, but at the end of the day, you are a whole person made in the image of God. The Psalter also speaks to the political, social, 
economic and religious theory uh, that we can, we can go to the Bible and learn about those things, establishing Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the supreme head of the created order. The psalmist is not uh, confused about who it is that reigns over all things. Yahweh, that is his covenant name, he is the God of all. It is Israel's God who, as wisdom, think Proverbs 8 here, gives wisdom and understanding to the world. God is wisdom, he gives wisdom and understanding to the world. Furthermore, when reading the Psalms, we are faced with both the squalid and filthy reality of sin, and then we're also faced with the beauty and splendor of God's sovereign grace. We see both types of things. We are struck by our sometimes tawdry efforts at worshiping God, and that is because God's holiness is striking. It should be striking to you when you consider the holiness and the the superiority of of God. Now, for the past two weeks, we have essentially been looking inward, uh, learning how to speak to the soul, Psalm 42. Why are you downcast? Why Talk to yourself, don't listen to yourself, that sort of thing. And we've also learned what it takes to execute a deep and abiding repentance in your life. Uh, We should be practicing repentance. That's a normal, de facto, default type posture of all Christians. And without without a doubt, these things are important tools to have in your spiritual bag. Absolutely. Uh, We want, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to have the central faith function of the heart set right. And we want it set right because everything else flows from there. That's the Christian worldview. We don't start with the created order. We start with the heart, the human heart. That is from where where everything flows, Proverbs 4 tells us. Now, tonight's psalm, as you no doubt have, when we were reading it, you might have been struck by it. It is uh, a little different. (laughs) Psalm 83 is a corporate or national lament, and it is a psalm of imprecation calling down judgment upon God's enemies. There is a very real, very present distress that is imminent in the psalm. You feel the weight of it as you read it. Uh, When you read it, you sense that there's something very difficult on the horizon. There's suffering imminent. There's there's pain. The wreckage of sin is is now enclosing upon the, the writer here. And in this case, the nations are in the conspiratorial stage of plotting against God's people. Uh, They haven't attacked just yet, but they are plotting. And and right now, they're banging their swords against their shields and planning to move at dawn. That is how close this danger is. And the people of God are thus on a precipice, on the precipice of disaster. And the question is, where do we turn? Now, imprecation in the Bible seeks three specific things. So when you see, uh, these are, I like reading the uh, imprecatory prayers outside of an abortion clinic, for example. (laughs) Uh, They're fitting for that. There's a place for it. Um, But the Bible, when you read these prayers of imprecation, there are three essential things that come with it. And the first thing is a call for God to arise and to act. A call for God to arise and to act. And and that is because we want him to vindicate his name and his people who bear his name. It's like in the Ten Commandments, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't carry the name of God in a vain way in your life, whether through your speech or your actions, any of it. But we want God to arise. We want him to act. We want him to vindicate himself 
And we want him to vindicate us, his people, who are bearing his name and giving witness to his name. The second thing the Bible looks for is for the enemies of God to be shamed and humiliated using whatever means necessary. So it's not wrong for us to wish for the enemies of God to be shamed and humiliated because of their stance against God and God's people. And the third thing is we ask for God's name to be vindicated in his action, for him to do something for the, very, for the express purpose uh, for the nations to either perish or turn in acknowledgement to the covenant Lord. We want God's name to be vindicated so that they will either perish and history will smite them as if history is you know, a thing. It's not in and of itself separate from God. God is in control of history, but we want them to perish or we want them to turn in acknowledgement to the covenant Lord. And Psalm 83 lays out this process quite nicely for us And I believe that we, the people of God today, can glean quite a bit from it. History has witnessed several attempts. All of them are just rehearsals of Genesis 3. History has witnessed several attempts of wicked men trying to bury the living God. And as someone once said, thankfully our God, though, knew his way out of the grave. But history has seen that over and over and over again, an attempt to uh, bury the, the living God. The, the text drives us to acknowledge God's sovereign rule over the world, but it also encourages us in the, in the sense that it, we, we should acknowledge his meticulous governance over evil as well. A lot of times we view evil as if it's this thing that is equal and as equal and ultimate as God is, and, and we give Satan, sin, and death this power that it just, in Scripture, says it doesn't have. God is sovereign. He is sovereign and, and providential, Uh, He is authoritative over all things, including evil. Evil itself is only on a leash. He is truly the most high God, the final verse says. And as such, he is to be honored and he is to be revered in all the earth. So we'll note that when we get there. But let's look at our passage. Uh, A reminder, look at actually Psalm 82 and look how Psalm 82 uh, ends in verse 8. It says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who will inherit all the nations. Note that. That's the end of Psalm 82. And Psalm 83 flows immediately out of this worldwide call for dominion, petitioning God as a consequence because of some dire situation. So zooming out, again, just a a quick overview of the passage. First, there's an appeal to God for for God to awaken, to listen to the psalmist. That's in verse 1. Second, the writer asks God to listen for two main reasons. He wants God to listen for two reasons. One, the enemies are actively plotting. That's verses 2 through 4. And the enemies are growing in number. They're forming alliances that are growing against God's people. That's verses 5 through 8. The third part is we have a petition for God to act. And to act given certain historical considerations. That's verses 9 through 12. There's an analogy from nature in verses 13 through 15, and then there is a basic human expression of the desired outcome. What does he want out of all of this? To God act, smite your enemies, for what end? And that is what verse 18 tells us what the end is. So God must not be uninvolved. The crisis is outlined. Look at verse 1 through 4. O God, do not remain at rest. Do not be silent. And O God, do not be quiet. For behold, your enemies roar. And those who hate you have lifted up their heads. They make shrewd plans against your people. 
They conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Christian theology teaches that God, he is the transcendent one, but he's also the imminent one. He is transcendent. He stands above and distinct from creation. You can't conflate those two. You can't, God is not ultimately identified by the creation. Um, and that's a problem, for example, for Muslims. But here in, in Christian theology, God is a transcendent one. He's distinct from creation. And he and almost appears to be silent. But yet, he's also actively engaged in his creation as he governs and superintends the world. So he's transcendent and imminent. And like Psalm 28, verse 1, and even Psalm 109, verse 1, we have this plea. And this plea shows up a few times in the Psalter. And the plea is for God to not keep silent. Do not keep silent. Um, this is a, the whole section here is a Psalm of Asaph. And the first Psalm of Asaph is Psalm 50. And in Psalm 50, verse 3, it says, May our God come and not be silent. And now here at the Asaph's final psalm here in, in, in Psalm 80, uh, 83, he ends where he began, dealing with the apparent silence of God. So it's, it's woven throughout the, the, the book of Psalms. And notice the threefold repetition. Do not remain at rest. Do not be silent. And do not be quiet. Don't be slothful. He's not accusing God of some sort of sloth and laziness, but don't be slothful, don't act mute, and don't act deaf either. He calls on God and God alone, and the reason that when you and I face a dire situa situation where we should call upon God and God alone is because ultimately men are at war with him. You, by the blood of Christ, have been made a friend of God. You are at peace with him. But if you don't name the name of Christ, then you're not at peace with him. You're at war for war with him and we need to call upon him and in verse 2 we have brought into the conflict the enemies of god are raging against christ and his people the enemies of god are austere vocal enemies of god uh, note that they are your enemies the writer says they're your enemies they are god's enemies first and foremost and thus it is god's business first and foremost so when you look at the world we're going to come back to this later but when you look at the world and see the tumultuous nature of things that is a battle with God, first and foremost, long before it's a battle with Christians. Even in the most darkest of persecution, think North Korea or some places in the, in, in, in the Middle East. Ultimately, it's a war against, against God. They're, they're your enemies, God. They're not first and foremost enemies of you or I. They're God's. The austerity of God's enemies are, are all sound and fury. It's all sound and fury here. There is showy and ostentatious um, beating, beating their chests, waltzing around like they think they're going to win. No doubt it's that. But without exception, their pomp and circumstance is useless and impotent, too. I mean, what, what, who, who could possibly fight against the living God and, and live to see another day? Verse 2, they have lifted up their heads. They have, in verse 3, made shrewd plans against the people of God, thinking themselves to be wise. They became fools. And they conspire together against your treasured ones. Uh, the treasured ones, by the way, are, are another way of saying that is are hidden ones or those who are actively protected and kept by grace and by covenant. That is the people of God. The conspiracy of nations is a desire, first and foremost, to squash God's people 
in an effort to ultimately try and squash God himself. And in verse 4, these nations, they want complete and utter annihilation. They don't even want Israel to be remembered. They want them completely wiped off the map so that no one even remembers them. They want to scrub the books. They They want no historical trace of God's covenant. Do you remember in the book of Esther what uh, the evil man Haman or Haman wanted to destroy the Jews? A reminder of that. In their mockery, they actually use the Hebrew word for nation, which is goy, which is uh, it's actually a degradation from their covenantal status as a people. So not only are they mocking Israel, they don't even acknowledge the covenant. They're like, you're just a nation like any other nation. You're not special. They mock them by refusing to elevate them to any special status. Their mockery is, according to the writer, intolerable. It's intolerable. It's unthinkable, unimaginable. Righteousness must be intolerant of evil because evil is intolerant of righteousness. The smokescreen of tolerance is, is, have you noticed that that's sort of gone away in our culture? That was the door. You just need to be tolerant. Now it's you will celebrate this and you will celebrate it, or we will force you out of your job, or you know, yada, 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 the, the war goes on. But righteousness has to be, by default, intolerant of evil, because evil is intolerant of righteousness. But not only that, because you can't define evil apart from righteousness. It's God's standard that wins the day. Wicked rulers and wicked people desire to drive the people of God out of the world so that they can be at peace with their aberrant worldview. Now, look at verse 5 through 8. We have present threats. For they have conspired, note that word again, together with one heart against you. They cut a covenant. I love that phrase in the Legacy Standard Bible. They, some translations in your lap, you might, they might say make a covenant or made a covenant. But the most literal way is to cut a covenant, what God did with Abraham. They have cut a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagrites, Gibal and Ammon and, and Amalek, Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria is brought up here. Assyria also has joined with them. They have become the power of the children of Lot. So conspiracy requires cooperation. And even the unregenerate are capable of befriending each other for at least five minutes for the sake of persecuting the righteous. To conspire against Israel is to conspire against God. They have cut a covenant against the covenant Lord. And, and Satan, you, you recall, can only forge a contract with willing parties. Uh, he has no blood to spill as a payment. He can only cut a false covenant. It's impossible. That's why it's always contract-based. The Edomites, they're descendants of Esau. The Ishmaelites, of course, descendants of Ishmael. They're involved. So are the Hagrites. Those are descendants of Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. Um, <laughs> Essentially, Israel's extended family is now in on the conspiracy. <laughs> Gibal is actually north of the modern-day city of, of Beirut in, in Lebanon. They have joined in on the conspiracy. The Ammonites and the Amalekites, they were Israel's greatest enemies in the book of Judges. We went through Judges recently. you remember them. They're there. Um, Philistia, those, that was Israel's greatest enemies during the time of the kings. Certainly David and Saul... Saul, who was before David, had their problems with Philistia, the Philistines. They're, they're here now. They're participants. Assyria, 
which is at this point the large superpower of the world, they're now a part of it. They are the culmination of all of the past foes. They're the big dog right now in this fight. They're, they were always a real threat up until 722 BC when they destroyed the northern kingdom. Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters produced Moab and Ammon. So there's a connection to Israel. And the nations are listed here not haphazardly. There's a reason they're listed here. The reason they're listed here to demonstrate that God's people can be destroyed in a variety of ways. They are threats. This is a writer who sees them as threats. They are encompassed and closed in from the north, south, east, and west. All of those nations listed, north, south, east, and west. They are surrounded by the enemies of God. And note that word, Selah. I don't really talk about this too much. It's a musical reference. But the Selah is there to give us pause so that we keep our unbelief in check. Because you read that and you can get kind of worked up. All these enemies are around. This is what they're doing. This is... Musical pause. Don't turn to unbelief at this point. There's more. We have defeated foes. Look at verse 9. Do to them as to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who were as dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmona, who said, Let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. We're reminded of the period of the judges when nations rather futilely tried to exterminate Israel. And here the petition begins. God, act. Here's the present problem. Don't forget what you've done in the past. Don't forget. Midian is a reference, of course, to Gideon's route in Judges 6 through 8. The story of Gideon when he had, rather miraculously, with the 300, taken out the over 100,000 Midianites. Sisera, you'll remember, was killed by the tent peg of Jael. Anybody remember that story? That was in Judges 4. Verse 10 is, is actually really curious. The enemies were turned into fertilizer. There was no burial, just fecal matter on the ground. <laughs> God feeds the birds with the corpses of his enemies. Uh, man's pride is driven to the ground so that Flowers can bloom instead. And frankly, there is no beauty in unbelief. They're dung for the ground. There's no beauty in unbelief whatsoever. Oreb and Zeb, you might remember, were princes of Midian. They were destroyed by Gideon. Also, Zeba and Zalmanah were kings of Midian. They were killed by Gideon in Judges 8.21. God had acted mightily through his anointed one, Gideon. The unity of God's enemies against Israel was for the possession of the pastures of God. That is, they wanted the land of Canaan, which was becoming the land of Israel. The great struggle in the period of the judges was, was for the inheritance, the land. Israel was the firstborn son who got the portion. That was their inheritance. But the land of Canaan, of course, became a massive temptation to them, and they wanted the pastures of God. They wanted the inheritance for themselves, just like the prodigal son. Verse 13, oh my God, my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that burns up the mountains. So pursue them with your tempest and dismay them with your storm. 
Fill their faces with disgrace, that they may seek your name, O Yahweh. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, your name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. The petition ends with a prayer for God to just rout the enemies. The prayer uses nature as an illustration. (laughs) The writer wants God to make his enemies like tumbleweed and chaff. Empty, vain, worthless, temporal, only suitable to be burned in fire. He wants them driven out as elements in nature to be destroyed. And by the way, wind doesn't necessarily destroy the chaff, but it moves them up and out. When you're on the threshing floor, trying to get the grain you got to break the husk and you got to get the chaff away. Uh, fire is brought up here. Fire burns the forest, it consumes the wood, and it also drives and displaces the people out. In other words, the psalmist wants God's enemies to be dealt with. It's not wrong for you to pray prayers of imprecation against men like Fauci. It's not wrong for you, people who are sworn enemies to God and his kingdom. It is not wrong for you to ask God to drive them away, to displace them, to deal with them. In fact, you probably, we probably should do it more, frankly. He also wants God, the, the creator of all storms, to dismay his enemies as the divine warrior king that he is. And while it is true that God does destroy his enemies, it is equally true that he sometimes turns them around by his grace. The ultimate goal is for the nations to seek the name of Yahweh in verse 16. Shame ought to humiliate them and thus drive them towards God's name and character. The seeking here is the act of looking to God for support and for guidance, for direction. Um, We want God's enemies to be smited, but we want them to seek the name of Yahweh. We want them to come to Christ. And if he so chooses, he can dismay them forever. He can humiliate them in their death and destruction. But God can also bring them to his covenant by his grace, the same way that all of us came. Numerous outcomes are possible here. Death, escape, humiliation, submission to God, and even the most basic recognition of Yahweh as Israel's true God. But either way, verse 18 is an option on the table. Their humiliation and shame and dismay ought to drive them to Yahweh, the God that they war against. This is our Christian conviction here, but the nations, we confess, must acknowledge Yahweh as the Most High, the Elyon, the Most High over all the earth. All the earth, the entire realm of creation, simply must bow before the Most High. And this is not an option, it's a divine command. So that is our passage. Let's figure out ways we can apply it and consider how we shall then live. When times are turbulent... And they are. Uh, We might be tempted to question the apparent silence of God, especially when they turn up the noise. The calamitous hubbub regarding um, amatory sexual ethics, not knowing what constitutes a woman, for example, or even the economic confusion of what constitutes a recession, all of it seems rather unsettling at the moment. It seems rather unsettling. It is fairly obvious that there is a general dysfunction that has metastasized and thus is affecting nearly all of culture. Sometimes you just wonder, boy, 50 years ago, we'd have never thought. (laughs) 
We are, friends, we are living in a rapidly evolving social revolution. Moreover, when our faith is rooted in what we can see with our eyes over against what we can see with the eyes of faith in God's self-disclosure and his word, we, we might consider all to be lost. We might look at the world around us and think, the enemies are around us, this is it, we're doomed. And those who think such things are what I like to call white flag Christians. They have surrendered territory and the enemies of God have taken that territory. And while I do not think the psalmist here is calling on God to speak based on any unbelief, this is a, a, a message of faith here, but he's not calling on unbelief. I do think there are some things we need to establish in our minds. And that said, the Bible offers up some things for us to consider when we are tempted to think and believe and wonder why God may be keeping his silence. For one, God's silence may indicate that he's busy gathering his enemies for destruction. Um, as a consequence, sometimes the people of God just need to wait it out. Sometimes that's what's called for. Hang tight. Hold the line. <laughs> Disciple your children. Go to work. Build wealth for the kingdom. Do those things. Don't get frazzled. He's busy gathering up his enemies for destruction. God's silence could also mean that he's testing his people like one tests a sword on the anvil. Pull it out of the fire, put it on the anvil, smack it with a hammer. You're testing it. You're testing it because you need to make sure that it works. To best allocate his sovereign resources, God strengthens his people in the trial. That's why James says to, to not, don't, don't fret like that. Like, consider it joy. The, the trial is there. In it, if you're a sword and you just came out of the furnace and you're glowing red, and a hammer strikes you, it's not, it wouldn't be pleasant, right? But it's good, though. It's good for the sword, right? It's good for the development of you as a sword for Christ's army. Another reason is God might simply want faith to be extended or stretched or expanded. It's like I always say, you know, you pray for patience, be ready to be in a traffic jam tomorrow. <laughs> That's how God expands us, stretches us, extends us. But regardless, if it seems as though the heavens are silent, rest assured that this should not be understood as defeat. To the contrary, the alleged silence of God ought to be a terror to all men. And when I say the silence of God, I mean boisterous nonsense in the world, the people of God seemingly defeated, and no sign of revival and reformation on the horizon. We are in a unique situation, this social revolution that we are experiencing. We know it can't be solved by politics. I mean, they're, they're, I think it was even today they were voting on the Inflation Act. And uh, it's, <laughs> you, you, it's a problem you caused and you think you're going to fix it? We know that that's, political realm is a place we need to press the crown rights of King Jesus into, but we know that that's not the answer. Now, in context, the silence has to do with God's action or the perceived lack thereof. To call on God to speak, when we pray in our prayers at home, even tonight, when you're praying before the Lord, before you lay your head down, and you say, God, arise and act and speak, you are calling on God to act on the basis of his covenant. You are invoking his covenant. 
We're petitioning God to not remain at rest and remain speechless. To do that is to cast one's cares on the Lord's shoulders, believing that with faith God will arise, believing that faith, or that believing by faith that God will move to action. Remember what the disciples did when they're on the Sea of Galilee. They had awakened Jesus up to help them during the storm, and they woke him up to help deal with the situation. Same situation for us. We're asking God to arise and awaken, not because he ever sleeps. The psalmist confesses other places that the God of Israel doesn't sleep nor slumber, but it's a metaphor. We're asking God to act, to move, to deal with this situation that seems so pressing. The writer here recounts redemptive history and all that God has done and confesses that God has acted in the past. He's acted in your life before, right? Can you acknowledge that today? You look back in your life and realize, wow, he really did guide some things here. Shocking. The sovereign God of the universe who holds your heart in place would have guided you. Shocking. (laughs) But based on God's action in the past, we know he's going to act in the future as well. You've done it before, Lord, do it again. That's our prayer. That's a prayer of imprecation. God, crush your enemies. You've done it before, do it again. God, establish your name in in the town square. You've done it again. Give us your spirit. You've done it before. Do it again. That's the prayer here. And I think sometimes that we fail to keep in mind that the biblical history is our history. It's our history. Abraham is our father because of Christ. He is our father. Christ is our risen Lord. And when we pray a prayer like this and we petition God with stern language, aimed at the enemies of Christ. What we want is for God to act in a similar manner, to rise up once again, to vindicate his glorious name, to say, God, do not let these nations blaspheme your name. Do not let the World Economic Forum manipulate your image bearers. Do not let them crush the poor. Do not let them blaspheme your son. Bring them to their knees. And we want God to vindicate his past work and his present reign, lest the enemies grow in conceit and in contempt. Which means, friends, we needn't fear the vociferous speech of God's enemies. We shouldn't fear what they say, what they're doing. Why? Well, because the indivisible nature of God's covenant relationship with his people is indestructible. There is no shearing off the covenant relationship that you have with Christ your Lord. What does Paul say? What can separate us? Who can separate us? Shall famine? Shall inflation? Shall shall growing statism separate us from the love of God? No. The enemies of God, they want to sever this relationship by aborting Christian witness in history. And you've seen this before. They will screech and caterwaul, demanding that the God of the universe show himself in some subjective manner. And when he does not stoop to such idiocy and imprudence, they will declare your God to be dead and gone. They will say, God, give your God. Okay, let's see what he does here. May he send lightning to strike me. Boy, that's something you don't want to watch. Apparently he struck the White House this week. I was like, all right, good. Let's wake things up here. But, you know, and, and, and when that doesn't happen, they will say, see, your God's dead. He's, and they will screech at you. And I'm reminded of what Christ told his disciples. They hate you because they hate me. 
The foaming at the mouth that comes from hearts set ablaze by sin will turn against you, seeing that you are one of his. To assault the people of God is to wage war against the kingdom of God. And that's the issue here in our text. They want Christ the husband, so they will harm the bride, his church. That's what they want. They want to drag the husband out to kill him. And they can't, so they will take his bride and they will hurt her. And this is obviously predictable because it's as old as Genesis 3. However, there are some other things we need to consider. The survival of Christianity in history is dependent on God and his sovereignty. It is not entirely dependent on us. Now, we should concern ourselves with God's reputation in culture. We should live holy lives. We should build God-honoring families. We should have Christ-saturated churches, and we should labor and preach and teach and all those things. And as we build our businesses, as we do all this stuff, we should, with an aim for the kingdom, we should be doing those things. But God is never, ever, ever truly threatened by men. If they could drag Christ off his throne and crucify him again, they would, but they can't. Despite the hostility, we should care deeply about the name of God in the public square. We should. And part of that caring is the task of prophetic witness. Prophetic witness requires determination brought about by biblical conviction. And as the passage points out, we should care about shame and humiliation, for example. The psalmist repeatedly talks about wanting the enemies of God to be ashamed of themselves. They want, to be, they want God's enemies to be ashamed, and therefore we have to see to it that shame is stewarded well in, in a culture. A decrease in shame in a culture is a sign that our moral compass has been utterly destroyed. It's unfathomable what gets paraded in the streets. It's unfathomable with these quote-unquote shows where kids get brought in to libraries. I mean, there's no shame. The shame is, is gone. And that's why it's called Pride Month, right? Listen to what Calvin said. He said, There is hardly one in a hundred who is as steadfast as he ought to be when God alone is witness. Note that. There's hardly one in a hundred who is as steadfast as he ought to be when God alone is witness. When no one else is around, are you as steadfast in your devotion to Christ? When no one else is watching, that's what we call integrity, right? He goes on. But shame renders us courageous and constrains us to be constant Shame is a grace to suppress your sin. It's good to feel ashamed of things. And it renders, Calvin says, it renders us courageous and constrains us to be constant. So there's a place for shame in holiness in your daily pursuit of mortifying sin. And thus, he says, the vigor that is almost extinct in private is aroused in public the lack of shame exists because there's a lack of gospel preaching. Private morality is always exhibited in public morality eventually. And when the governor of shame is taken off of that engine, it goes. And the Bible doesn't see a separation there, by the way. But, but the morality could be good or bad. Bad ethics at the, in the home lead to bad ethics in the public square. When bad ethics are in the public square, we have to pause and ask why this is the case. And why... It is the case, we know, because of a lack of prophetic witness. The, the salt and light, that calling has been utterly squandered, and perhaps that is why the social revolution continues unabated. 
Now, I do believe God is waking up his church today, so don't get me wrong. But the problem is we keep pushing the snooze button. But eventually the spirit will jolt us out of our slumber. And so, friends, we call on God to act. We call on God to act. The name of King Jesus must be made known. Every knee shall bow. When the church is encircled by the enemies of God, our response, one of faith, should be, well, they can't get away from us now. The loudness of the enemies is nothing in the silence of God. And it is not as though God hasn't spoken up. He has in his son. Psalm 2 in Hebrews chapter 1 tells us he has spoken loudly. And we have the incarnate word who lived in obedience. He died so that we might die, who was raised so that we might be raised in glory. Sins conquered and abolished, death extinguished, resurrection life applied retroactively through the spirit who lives and moves in us. And this is Christianity in the midst of revolution. It's a great book title. I'm going to store that for a rainy day. Christianity in the midst of revolution. God's sanctifying of history means that the, means that the end of sin and the autonomy that it produces in wayward sinners. We can't lose sight of what it is that redeems men and women. Don't lose sight of it. The gospel has infiltrated the world. The world is getting better because the gospel has infiltrated its ranks. It is here. It is present. Christ is Lord. And because of Jesus... The direction of, of men's hearts, all of the heart-centered proclivities are now set on a new course. That's what regeneration does in you, right? It changes what you love. It changes what you hate because they used to be the opposite. And the growing cultural consternation, everything we see unfolding around us is generally what we call death throes. A dying civilization that has run to the end of itself and here we are, the people of God, ready to be salt and light. So Christ is risen. Prepare yourself to be subjugated by his kingdom, either in repentance or in utter defeat. That's the message of the gospel. He is Lord. And remember, though, the vengeance is God's. The vengeance is God's. The potential suffering that may ensue or, or, and, and the call to proclaim the word, that's ours. And I want to end with this. I was listening to a lecture from Cornelius Van Til on, on Christianity and culture. And uh, there aren't a ton of those out there that are audio recorded. It's on YouTube. And in it, he referenced the faith-focused actions of many of the older, saint, older Testament saints. And he made mention of Noah. And, and kids, I especially want you to hear this. He, meant, he made mention of Noah and something that was very, very striking to me when he said it. When Noah and his sons were building the ark... Do you recall that situation? It was obvious in that moment that Noah was opening up himself to criticism. Rain, what is this? We're building it up on a mountain. Noah, what, is, what are you doing? Building this giant boat, this ark. Now, faith sometimes does open us up to criticism from the world. When God speaks and acts, sometimes the world thinks it's utter foolishness. Noah was, of course, resolute. Uh, we know from Scripture, even the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. So that's a pretty foolish thing. <laughs> a giant boat? Really? Okay. Now, no doubt people asked why Noah was building a boat for rain that hadn't come on a mountain with no ocean in, in sight. You know, how are you going to get this 
This is what Van Til said in his lecture. He said, how are you going get, to get this massive boat into the water? And uh, Van Til pointed out that faith, the faith of Noah elicited this response to that question. No doubt being jeered by people. The world just, you're a fool, Noah. What are you doing? Faith said this, the water will come to this ship. <laughs> I don't know why that was so striking to me, but it was. The water will come to the ship. Because every, every normal <laughs> level-headed response would say, we got to get the boat to the, to the water. That's how you do things. In fact, we build boats in the water, or at least right next to them. Giant billion-dollar Navy ships, right? I mean, it's incredible what we can do. But here's Noah with no rain to be found in sight building this giant ark for water that cannot be seen anywhere. Noah said, by faith, the water will come to the ship. Noah cared about the cultural mandate. He acted in faith despite all the mockery and contempt from the enemies of God. He knew his covenant Lord, and he knew with unflinching resolution in his heart what God had demanded from him, and he acted on it. And friends, here's the thing. You know Christ our Lord and we are assured that Christ will conquer. He will. And that's because he is risen. And he is risen indeed. So act accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we come and bow before you and are thankful for your word, what you have shown us therein. There is so much richness to be mined and discovered and gems to discover and I pray, Lord, that your spirit would show us that. Show us those things, Lord, as we go this week to open up your word. Help us to hear from you. Guide us by your spirit's power. And Lord, as we are in the midst of a disheveled and broken down culture that has refused to bend the knee to your son, Lord, we confess that we wish your enemies to be dismayed. We wish for their faces to be filled with disgrace. God, may they feel the weight of their sins so that they can see the glory of your Savior, the Lord Jesus. We want Christ to be acknowledged in our homes, in our churches, and in the culture, in the world around us. So God, would you equip us and utilize us for that great task? Help us to be patient. Help us to look at the long term. Help us to know that you are with us. We want them to know that you alone, your name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. In Christ's name I pray, amen.